I am uh, glad to be here, but I'm even more glad to see somebody else here today, somebody that you've been praying for before I dismiss our kids out of here. Josh Todd sitting back in the back, somebody you guys have been praying for. For, for many months, it's great to see he's healed up enough to be here today, so thanks for joining us today, Josh, and everybody, thank you for praying for him and for Natalie and for his family as he's going. So now I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our kids on out of here, so if you are K through fifth grade, head that way, and as they're heading that way, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles today and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 6 as we wrap up our unseen battle. Um, or maybe seen since we just saw it in full effect just now. But we are moving into our last week, and if you've been with us at all during all this, during online, whether it be in person, uh, you know that the premise of all of this is that there is a battle that is unseen, that rages all around us. And in that battle is something that we need to take a stand. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about this battle in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles open there, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. But there's good news as we have this struggle that God has given us his armor to put on. God has given us his, his armor that we can use in this battle, and that way we're able to take a stand. As a matter of fact, that's what it says in verse 13. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. To take your stand. So for the past weeks, we have looked deeper into what it looks like to take this stand. We started off with the unseen battle. The second week we talked about the belt of truth that holds everything together. We move from the belt of truth into that armor or breastplate of righteousness that helps us live rightly in Christ. From there we talked about the gospel boots of peace that help us stand firm in the word of God. And that word of God tells us that we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in him, we have that peace and we can stand firm that we are not at war with God. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the shield of faith. And the shield of faith is that first line of defense against those flaming arrows of doubt, flaming arrows of temptation that tend to be shot at us by the evil one. And that helps protect us in that. And then last week, we talked about the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation helps us recognize the justification that we have in the past as we are saved. We are being saved in that sanctification of the present, and we will be saved the glorification of the future. So today, as we begin to look, these things are all here so we can stand firm. That is the purpose of it all, so we can stand firm against the adversary of the devil and the schemes that he has against us. Today, we're going to be looking at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the only piece that is mentioned that can be used both defensively and offensively. So the first thing we have to look at is we have to look at the sword. And I'll tell you, it's great to have friends who are cool, okay? Because um, I have a friend here, he's actually sitting out there right now, but I asked him, I said, hey, do you by chance have any swords that could be a great prop 
for all the things that we're doing here? And he said, as a matter of fact, I do. So he lent me his sword. And I want you guys to see this sword here. And this is a Lord of the Rings sword. And he could tell you exactly what it means. He said something about Norwals or Narnia or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, but this is a similar sword to what a Roman soldier would use but not the one that Paul is talking about because actually he would have two swords. This is more the broad sword that I don't want to, yeah, I had the projector over me because that would be a bad thing, more spiritual warfare. But this would be used for kind of a swiping type of motion. The one that Paul is talking about today is actually, I'm going to leave this here because it's just that cool. It has to be on display as long as it doesn't fall off while I'm talking. Mike, it won't break, right? Okay, good. Just want to make sure because I don't think I want to replace it. Actually, what Paul is talking about here is another one of Mike's swords, because cool people have more than one, I guess. This is more the dagger style. This is more the short sword that you would see in the battles. They had their one shield, and they would use this to attack and defend at the same time. This is the type of sword that Paul is talking about today. And so as we are diving in, I want you to understand that Paul is using this reference to talk about the Word of God and how the Word of God is used in close hand-to-hand -hand combat with our adversary, both for defense and for offense. So as we're looking at that, Paul says, here is the sword of the Spirit. So it is supplied by the Spirit, and that sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The word used here for word is not the typical word that we think about. A lot of times we think of the word, if you've done any word studies before, you go to John chapter 1, or John chapter uh, verse 1, or verse 14 where it says, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The word used there is logos, which is kind of the entire scriptures. But today, as we look, Paul uses a word called rima, and rima is actually a spoken word, a specific word that used in more of this hand-to-hand -hand combat. It actually probably refers to taking a, a particular passage in Scripture, not Scripture as a whole, but a particular passage to use on defense or to use on offense. So as we begin to look at this, we have to understand and know he's telling us we have to know the scripture, and then use it. Know the scripture and ap apply it. So what I really want to do today is I want to really accomplish two things. Number one, I want us to look at the word of God. Then I want us to see it as that weapon and how to use it both defensively and offensively. So first, let's look at the weapon that is the word of God. And I don't want to come across elementary. But I think this is very important. Just kind of lay that foundation. When we use a weapon, we need to understand what it is and how to use it. Because if somebody were to break into my house and I had this under my bed and I just started flailing around with it or something like you want to know how to use it. And you want to know what it is. And so as we look at this, it kind of reminds me of Vince Lombardi. And maybe you guys have heard this before, but Vince Lombardi at the beginning of every football season of training camp, he would take a football and he would hold out that pigskin in his hand and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And he's talking to players who have been playing their entire life. 
And he's pointing out the fact that we have to get back to the basics. So here's what I'm going to say to you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. This is the word of God. And as we look at that, here's some things we need to understand. First of all, it is completely unique. It is completely unique. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of extra time on their hands. And one happens to be this guy. It's a Google analyst. And in all the time that he's had on his hands, he decided to figure out how many books have ever been published. Anybody want to take a wild stab at how many books have ever been published? Really close on the 100 million, 130 million. 130 million different books have all been published. And in that, they say that there's anywhere between 1 and 2 million new books published every year. There's lots of books published every year, but some are reprints and so on and so forth. So that number is consistently going up. And as that number consistently goes up, there's something we need to understand. That this one is completely unique from all of the other ones. This one is completely unique from all of the other ones. Here's what we need to know. That's not just one book. It's actually 66 books that's written by over 40 authors over a span of about 1,500 years. That makes it unique. And the great thing is it's not just 66 individual books. It's 66 books that make one whole. It is unified together. And as we get back into our gospel project, excuse me, as we get back into our gospel project next week, You'll see, and the thing I've wanted you to see that we've been going through that for the last three years is that all the Old Testament and all the New Testament, they work together with the common thread of two things. And one, that is the grace of God. And two, that is the gospel of Jesus is found in all of them. And as we look at that, we're going to see some things about the Bible. And, and in the Bible, it's more than just the fact it's a unique book. There's some real important things we need to understand. The first one is this. Though there are 40 different human authors, God is the ultimate author. The authorship of God, it comes straight from him. 2 Timothy 3.16, and I'm going to roll out a lot of scriptures here that won't be on the screen except for the reference. So if you want to write them down and look at them again later, that, that'd be great. But God is the author. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Second Peter 1.20 says, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. See, the Bible isn't a collection of human wisdom. It's not a collection of human religious thought. See, if it were, it couldn't be possible because if evil men were to write it, well, they're condemned in the Bible. If good men were to write it, they'd be basically saying that they are liars because right here we see who the author actually is. God wrote it as they moved along through the prophets. They're carried along by his spirit. So first, God is his author. Second thing is two words that you probably have heard before, inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means without error, infallible means incapable of error. The Bible is true in all it says on any subject. I believe that with all my heart. I know that's a debate that is out there. I know there's some churches that don't believe that. I believe with all my heart that the Bible is inerrant and infallible because, again, God is its author. 
Psalm 19, 7 and 8 says these words. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making an experienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. A verse we talked about last week, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. It's also authoritative. I don't even think I like the word authoritative. It is the ultimate authority. It is the ultimate authority. Isaiah 55, 11 and Isaiah 45, 23 talk to us that God, the word of God has authority. See, when we open the word of God, when we are looking at it, we're not just looking at a human book. We are looking at literally the word of God. The creator of the heavens and the earth wanted to speak to us and it's recorded right here. How amazing is that? Probably way more amazing than we think or we be in it more often. And we'll talk about that more here shortly. There's the amazingness of the authority is there. And that amazingness of authority, it causes us to see it and yield to it instead of trying to get it to yield to us. Too often we like to twist Scripture to fit our lives instead of twist our lives to fit Scripture. And that has some power behind it. It has power. And you know what? I watched last year Antifa gather together to burn Bibles. I, I, I've watched historical videos of Nazis burning Bibles. I've watched people in communism burn Bibles. You know why? Because it's authoritative and has the power to change me. And if I don't want it to be changed, I just leave it where it's at. I don't want to apply that to my life, so I push it away. It has the power to accomplish God's sovereign purposes in the face of a culture that wants nothing to do with it, will do anything it can to get rid of it. I love this verse in James 1.18 when it says this, it has the power to save us. It says, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 1 Peter 1, 23, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. We've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. It has the power to change us. Even Hollywood knows it. You ever seen the book of Eli with Denzel Washington? The whole movie's premise is, is that one bad guy wants to get a hold of the Bible so he can use it to change people and manipulate people. And Denzel Washington's character wants to keep it so it is there to change people the way back that they need to be because they had gotten so far away from God. We are able to be changed if we allow it. It has the power to expose our sin. It has the power to restore us to God. It has the power to sanctify us as we talked about the process of being saved last week, to sanctify us and equip us to live righteously, that breastplate of righteousness with a belt of truth holding everything together because it is the truth. It is the word of truth. And we're gonna talk more about that here in a second. It's also complete. It's complete. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't go into every detail of everything, but it's complete in giving us everything we need pertaining to a life of godliness that we need to live. Listen to what 2 Peter 1.3 says. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory 
and goodness. He's given us everything required for life and godliness. That is what we need to understand. We don't need extra revelation. We don't need God to give us something else to know what God's will is. We don't, he, he's given it to us. We know God well enough to believe and submit to him and how to live a godly life because he's given it to us. We don't need extra in that. It's also sufficient. I've already read this verse, but I'll read it again. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is sufficient. Teaching is how we get onto the path of righteousness. Rebuke is how you find out you're off the path of righteousness. Correction is how you get back on the path of righteousness, and training is how you stay on the path of righteousness. This is that process of sanctification that we talked about last week. It's also effective. Effective. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, the verse we open up with today, says these words, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. The author here, some think it is Paul, is saying, not just is it the sword, it is stronger and sharper than the sword that we have here. And so as we begin to look at this, it is penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and the spirit. It is going to the very heart of man. Joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature, which is those who are saved and those who are not, is hidden from him. But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. The word of God exposes the soul. Exposes who we are. It has power. It is effective in that power. And the word of God is also a resource of the gifts that have been given to us by God. It is a source of truth. We talked about it a couple weeks ago when we talked about the belt of truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Again, there's that sanctification. Your word is truth, he says. It holds everything together. It's also our source of joy. It's our source of joy. Verse uh, uh, sorry, Luke says this, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Who hear the word of God and keep it. See, the world pursues happiness in all sorts of things and their happiness is based on their circumstances. When we hear the word of God and we keep it, our circumstances, they don't matter. They don't matter to give us joy. We have joy because we know what is contained in this book. We know that we are saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. That brings us joy. It's a source of spiritual growth. How many times does the Bible talk about being either milk or meat for us to take in and grow stronger? It's our source of power we've already talked about. It's our source of guidance. The word is a, a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. It is a source of comfort when we're hurting. It's a source of protection from sin, as we will see here as we talk about this offensive and defensive thing. And finally, the best part I love about it, it's a source of victory. We've told you from the very beginning of this series, we fight from victory, not for victory. This is our source of victory. Everything that Satan throws at us, whether we have to defend it or we go on the offense against it, Jesus says, hey, I use it in my ministry. 
I, I did it offensively. I did it defensively. I used it to defend against temptations. I used it to defend against attacks, attacks. But at the same time, I used it to bring conviction to people's hearts and people's lives. So that's just a really quick, probably a sermon in itself. Throw everything I possibly can at you. That's why I gave you the verses. Take a look at it. Hopefully you wrote it down. You can watch it again online uh, later today uh, if you want to get some of those things. But that's just a quick look at the word that's been given to us by the Spirit. The next question is, is what are you supposed to do with it? How do you use it? How do you use it on the offense? How do you use it on the defense? Because you can use it to both ward off Satan's attacks against you as well as go on the attack against him. You can use it to block defensively because Satan's going to come at you with lies. We know that. We know he's going to come at us with lies because Satan call, or Jesus called Satan a liar and a murderer. We used this verse already once before in all of this, but John 8, 44, he says this. Jesus is talking to uh, some religious leaders, which is a funny thing in itself. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. See, one of Satan's greatest weapons is the use of lies. How do you combat lies? With the truth. When lies are being pushed into your head, when, when half-truths are being pushed into your head, how do you combat those? How do you defend against those? With the truth. See, Satan wants to attack. He wants to destroy our faith. He wants to make us ineffective. He wants to make us in a place where we just kind of cower in our basements and suck on our thumbs saying, I don't think I can do this anymore. He wants to put us in that place. And he constantly is calling us to question everything that God says is true. How do you know the truth. Because guess what? We're going to experience this thing every day. We're going to experience these attacks all the time. How are we going to come across that and fight against it? It's found in the scriptures. It's found right here. As a matter of fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said these words, we are not to fight the devil in our own strength or power or with our own ideas. We are to fight him with this word that the very Spirit of God Himself has produced. When you consider the strength and the power of the enemy that is against us, you will see the importance of realizing the strength and the power of this particular weapon. We have to understand that. We cannot do it on our own. So how do we do it defensively? Well, there's a great example. Jesus. He showed us how to do it defensively when he was taken into the desert after he was baptized and he was tempted by Satan. We talked about it last May. I know you've slept a lot since then and uh, a lot of other crazy things have happened since then. But we got deeper into the temptation of Jesus last May, so I'm not going to go into too much, but here's the deal. Jesus was out there fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. He was in a weakened physical condition and that's when Satan likes to come at us, isn't he? When we're in a weakened condition in some way. He came and he tempted Jesus in a handful of different ways. He threw at him the questioning of God. He threw at him the pride issue. He threw at him the lust of the eyes. The same thing he throws at us. And Jesus answered each and every one of those temptations with the word of God. As a matter of fact, he used three words. You guys know what those three words are? It is written. It is written over and over and over again. He said, it is written. And in that, he said, this is where it's written. 
And he quoted exact scripture. He didn't just say, well, the, the Bible says somewhere something about this. He knew the word of God and he used it precisely. Remember, it's that dagger. It's not the big broadsword. It's the dagger. It's the, it's the defense in the hand-to-hand combat. He didn't just use the whole word. He used specific scriptures against specific temptations to be able to ward them off. And he knew how to use them. He didn't just know where they were. He knew how to use them. This is something I wrote down. Jesus did not defeat Satan by just quoting scriptures. See, scripture can't just be used like some magical potion, abracadabra kind of thing, some incantation kind of thing. Instead, Jesus defeated Satan by knowing the word of God and being obedient and submitting to it. That is how he used it. See, a fancy sword will do you no good if you don't know how to use it. I got, I got a really fancy sword here. It's a study Bible, and it's got all kinds of notes in it, and it's got a really nice leather or fake leather cover and, and all kinds of little designs on it. And that's great and all, but it does me no good if I don't know how to use it. And it does me even less good if I leave it hanging on the wall. If I just leave it sitting on the, on the coffee table in the middle of my room or the the bedroom nightstand if i never open it and never use it never work to apply it if that doesn't happen it does me no good and here's the thing you need to know the word of god and you need to apply the word of god do you know the word well enough to counter the deceptions that are being thrust against you by the adversary himself Please understand that countering doesn't happen by accident. I don't know how many of you guys have ever seen the movie The Princess Bride. When I say that, probably a couple of specific quotes come to your mind if you have seen it. But I want to direct you towards a scene where Wesley and Inigo Montoya are having a sword fight. That sword fight is known as one of the best sword fights in movie history. I know, it's such a goofy movie to think of that would be considered that. They, the author himself, when he was writing the book before it became a play, studied deep about 16th and 17th century sword fighting so he could accurately describe a sword fight in the book. And then in the movie, they actually practiced sword fighting for five days a week, eight hours a day, for months in order to perfect that scene. It's funny because the actor said, oh, it shouldn't be hard. It's just a dance. It's just this. No, it turned out it was much more. It took some in-depth study to know how to use the sword and know how to put it into practice. And that was just for a movie. Think about when we're in real spiritual warfare here. Do you know how to use your sword? Do you know how to counter every lie, every slander, every deception with the precise scripture to lay that block? To be able to put that truth out there. Are we controlled by the truth enough to be obedient to it and to submit to it and say, my emotions, my feelings are confusing me, but I know what the truth is. And once again, that's where that belt of truth holds everything together. It's amazing how all this ties together, isn't it? That belt of truth holds it all together. And he says, this is where we need to be. How well do you know the truth? How well can you use it for the defense? And even more so, how well can you use it for the offense? See, there's an offensive aspect to all this. And I can say offensive or offensive, and probably both in some cases, right? We don't just passively wait 
for Satan's attacks. No, we are called to be out doing ministry. We're called to go wherever we are going and make disciples. You know what that is? That's an attack on Satan's realm. That's an attack on, on Satan's desire to control people. But we need to understand it's the word of God. It's the word of the spirit that penetrates the very heart of man. It's not my eloquent words or lack thereof, I guess, in this case. But the reality is it's God speaking and penetrating into man's hearts, into women's hearts, into kids' hearts, and, and saying, this is where you need to be changed at. See, ministry isn't something we just need to be trying to do on our own power. And oftentimes, we do that. If we have the right program in place, we have the right amount of money in place, we have the right, we feel that, no, we need the right spirit in place, doing the work through us. See, the core of every ministry must be the scriptures. Nothing we do as Christians will be done well apart from the scriptures, apart from the spirit. Another way we can use scripture on the offense is to actually submit ourselves to it. To submit ourselves to it. To know the truth and the truth will set you free. But when I think of submitting myself to scripture, there's, there's a specific passage that seems to come to mind. You've probably heard it before, but it's James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And this is what it says. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and guess what's going to happen? He will flee from you. That sounds pretty offensive to me. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We talked about that even with the mind of salvation, the protection of the helmet. Don't be double-minded. Be single-minded on Christ. Submit to him. A question came to my mind. What if, what if we fully submitted our lives to God? What if we fully submitted our lives to his word? According to Satan, or according to this verse, Satan would run. He, he would flee. Why? Because when we submit, we're abiding under the authority of another. That's the definition to submit. We're abiding under the authority of another, which is coincidence would have it, Jesus actually talks about us abiding in him. John chapter 15, verses four and five. Maybe you've heard of it. It says these words, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me or abides in me and I in him produces much fruit because apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, you guys knew it. We can't do anything. Well, you know what that, that nothing encompasses? Fighting the devil. We can't fight him on our own. The devil knows that. You know why he flees when we submit to God? Because he knows he can't beat Christ because he's already lost. If we're trying to do it on his own, he's like, sweet, I know that guy didn't know how to use a sword. I'll go after him. We'll take him on. He's using the broadsword in a time when you're supposed to be using the dagger. He's just waving that thing around, you know. That's what he sees. But if we have Christ and we've submitted to him and we've submitted our lives to him and we're giving ourselves over to him, that changes everything. So how do we remain in him? How do we abide in him? Well, it starts by being in his word, understanding how he wants us to submit. So here's some practical things that you can do today. First is read it. Read it. I know that sounds like a duh, 
You know how many times I get statistics that come across my desk in some way, shape, or form from some Christian organization that talks about the amount of people that don't either A, believe that the Bible is infallible and inerrant, or B, they never pick it up. 80% of Christians only pick up their Bible on Sunday morning and they only have somebody else tell them what it says. That's a crazy high number. And those are people that call themselves Christians. How do you know what God wants you to do if you're not listening to him? How do we live our lives in such a way? We read it, and don't just read it, meditate on it. Meditate on it. Charles Spurgeon says these words, a man who wants to see a country must not hurry through it by express train, but he must stop in the towns and the villages and see what is to be seen. He will know more about the land and his people if he walks the highways, climbs the mountains, stays in the homes, and visits the workshops than if he does so many miles in a day and hurries through the picture galleries as if death were pursuing him. He's saying, don't hurry. Don't hurry through Scripture. Pause and let the Lord speak to you. I think about this. A couple weeks ago, I was at Sam's Club and saw these giant bones from my dogs, and they had like the crusty meat stuff on the outside, and they had the hollow middle, but there was stuff inside, the, the, the marrow chunks of my dogs. I threw it out there, and they chewed on those for hours, getting every last bit that they could. They had their tongues going in, trying to get the stuff out of the hole. They started picking up the bones and dropping them until they actually broke in half so they could get everything out of the middle of them. They wanted every bit of it. What if we were the same way with Scripture? What if we chewed on Scripture in the same way? What if we wanted every bit of it because we couldn't get enough? What if that was the way we responded? Meditate on it. Memorize it. That's just another way of meditating on it. it to, to take it into your life and internalize it. It helps shape our minds. It helps prepare us for the days that are evil. Pray it. Use your Bible in your prayers. Use the words that originated in the mind of God. Let them circulate through your heart and come back out as you regurgitate it. You give it back to the mind of God. How awesome would that be to allow his words to shape our hearts and shape our minds in prayer? And of course, if you've ever grew up watching infomercials, pray it and obey it sounds kind of like set it and forget it. But here's the thing. I, I want you to hold on to that. Pray it but also obey it. Apply it to our lives. What if we prayed for it to penetrate our lives in such a way that we couldn't help but respond to it in obedience? What if we prayed in such a way to say, God, revive my heart. Change who I am. For the last 11 months, bitterness has crept into most people I know. Some a little bit bigger than others. But what if during the last 11 months we could have been praying, God, I want you to creep into my life more than I could possibly know. I want you to change me. I want you to peel me back. I want you to reveal and expose that stuff. I am naked before you, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. I, I am seen. Help me see that and help me go, I need to be in you. What if we prayed that? First of all, it would hurt. So I'm going to give you that right now. But second of all, what would our lives look like? What would our church look like? What would our communities look like if that were our response? As a matter of fact, there's power in praying it. And that's how Paul actually wraps up the entire section on this 
unseen battle. If you have your Bible still open to Ephesians chapter 6, or you flipped back and forth all over the place, I'm sorry. Going back to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 17, 18, and 19 just really quick. Probably a sermon in themselves, but this is what it says. In verse 17, or verse 18, it says, Pray at all times in the Spirit, with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me where I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. I showed you there verse 17 to begin with, and and the reason why was because in that verse, it is actually a continuation of thought. It's not like he says, here's all the battle plans here, and then here's prayer over here. No, prayer wraps it all up. We stand firm against the enemy's schemes, through prayer. We keep the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the gospel shoes of peace through prayer because we're keeping our mind with him. We take up the sword of the spirit prayerfully. That's how we move. And even Paul, or even though Paul doesn't actually tie prayer to a piece of armor, they didn't have cool headsets and walkie-talkies in Roman times. But that's kind of what I think of when I think if we're going modern war guy, and I'm not talking about the guy sitting on his couch playing modern warfare Call of Duty, although they probably wear headsets too and they're really cool in that. But I'm talking about the actual people who have the headsets on, who are using the walkie-talkies, and there's a communication there to know what other people are doing, but even more so what headquarters wants us to do. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this about prayer. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war. And that's not all it is, but it is certainly that. Our weakness is prayer, our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts down in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. We use prayer to help us in this battle. We use prayer to connect us to headquarters. We use prayer to be on the same page and understand what the battle plan is. And Paul says it again in verse 18. He says, pray at all times in the Spirit. We need to be praying this in the Spirit because in case you're wondering, we can pray in the flesh. And guess what? That doesn't work out well. Matter of fact, Jesus calls the Pharisees out for it back in, in the Gospels. We need to be praying in the Spirit and he tells us how to do it. He says, I want you to pray deep. I want you to pray wide. I want you to pray boldly. I want you to pray covering everything. That's why in the, in the verses he says, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with every prayer and request. Stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. He wants it to be wide covering. And then he says, pray boldly for gospel boldness in verse 19. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of Christ. See, Christ has called us to have an abundant life in him. One of the lies that Satan's going to throw is that Our life in Christ isn't abundant. It's just a bunch of rules. It's just a bunch of, and he'll throw in all kinds of lies and say, it's not abundance. And too often, we miss the opportunity to live abundantly and live boldly for Christ because we get caught up in the fact that we're not even communicating with him. 
We're not even talking for it with him. We're not even asking for it. I love the way that verse 19 is actually translated in the NIV versus the CSB that I just read because he says, I want you to pray for me that I can pray and preach Christ fearlessly. Not just boldly, fearlessly. And I got to thinking about that. Fear. How often do we live in fear of what others might think if we were to share the gospel? If we were to go on the offense with the gospel? How often are we going to be worried about what somebody else might think if we're sharing who Christ is? If we are attacking Satan's realm and worrying about what others think rather than worrying about what God thinks? See, we live in fear that our lives might lose its comfortable status, that comfort of the den, calling upstairs for help. Instead, we need to be reaching bigger and further in all of that. We need to stand firm with the armor of God in place because we are at war. And that firmness means we have to stand fearlessly. I love the quote that I heard this week, and I think it's from a movie. I haven't seen it. But it said, a life lived in fear is a life half-lived. A life lived in fear is a life half-lived. We gather together here. We'll call this headquarters where God sends his message to each and every one of us. But then when we hear it on a Sunday, what do we do for the rest of the week? We cower in fear for fear of the things that God has called us to do because we're afraid of the changes that might happen. We're afraid of the pain that might happen. We're afraid of, of whatever it might be and we don't move forward. We come up with every excuse, but what if we just listened? What if we prayed it and obeyed it? What if we took that step? Because that's a huge step. I heard a guy talking this week when I was listening to a podcast. He said, from the time that God calls us to do something, the time that we actually obey it tells us our amount of spiritual maturity. And I went, oh, I don't like that. But it does give us a good regulator, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's a, it's a good, good way to kind of tell. Oh, God, I, I don't think, I don't trust you. That's what Satan wants. Call into question the goodness of God. We need to move forward and not live in fear. We need to stand firm with the armor of God in place, connected with him in prayer. And then we also need to be praying for our fellow soldiers to live fearlessly in Christ. We are together. We are working on this together. And you know what? This morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. We're going to sing two songs to end here. And as we sing these two songs, the kids are going to come in. And the kids are going to come in and they're going to, this was supposed to happen last week, by the way, so I apologize. You're going to get Valentine's stuff a week late, but it's 50% off, so that's good. Um, <laughs> you're going to get a, a heart. And on that heart is going to be the name of one of the kids that's back in our kids' ministry. And you're going to get that heart and I'm going to ask you to pray for that child. At the same time, you're praying that God would move you towards a, a spirit of obedience and praying for that. I want you to include that child in your prayers this week. Because a lot of people say that's our next generation of the church. I tell you this, that is the generation, not the next. They are in the now. And we need to be praying for them that we're raising up leaders because this world isn't going to get any easier for Christians. And this world isn't going to get any easier for churches. And this world isn't going to get any easier for the kids who are trying to take that stand. And we need to be praying for them to live 
fearlessly and boldly, just as you're going to pray for everybody else in this room, and just as you're going to pray for everybody else that's in our church directory, and just as you're going to pray for everybody else that you know, just as you're going to pray for Rick and Lori as they go, just as you're going to pray as we do next week, Ken and Kathy Black are also moving, and we're going to pray over them next week. That's what we're going to do. So I'm going to close in prayer, and we're going to sing these last two songs, and as we sing these last two songs, like I said, the kids are going to come in, and they're going to give you, I think they're actually going to give you candy too, so be, be happy about that. But, and if you don't want it, you can leave it up here. I'll take it. Um, the, the thing is, though, is we are going to pray. And we're going to pray boldly. And we're going to pray for God to move in our midst, in our church, and in our community, both through us and through our kids. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word, our source of power, our source of hope, our source of joy, our source of protection against sin, our source of thrusting towards the enemy to be on the attack to break down satan's realm he is the prince of this world but god you have defeated him and you've given us the power through your word to penetrate into men's hearts women's hearts kids hearts to see an obedient change take place god we are so grateful for it i'm blown away the fact that you'd use us to begin with because you could have done it all on your own, but instead you created us to use us for your glory and your honor. And I pray, God, that we submit to that and watch the devil flee. We pray it all in your name. Amen.